We are going to sing a song that uh, Cindy and I had heard at Ridgecrest years ago at a conference that we were able to attend. It's called Holiness is My Desire. And we want to go through it once, and then we want you guys to sing it with us the second time. And it's called Holiness is My Desire. And may that be our heart today. Oh, uh-huh. 
We have been going through a series on revival. To revive means to live again. God breathes spiritual life into His kids. And it seems that that life fades so fast. And we lose sight of He who gave us that life. And and this morning, I want to look at revival in regard to the heart. And as I thought about this, guys, it brought me back to the man who is described as a man after God's own heart, David. And we're going to look this morning, um, you know, your basic old-timey three-point sermon, I guess, the making of a man, the breaking of a man, and the waking of a man. And my desire is that God will, will speak to us. Uh, we're going to be looking mostly in Second uh, Samuel 11 and 12, but looking at a couple places. But let's go to Him in prayer. Here we are again, Master. What a bunch we are. We're yours. We're loved. We're secure. And we forget you. Father, as I come to you, I do not preach to a people who I think need something that I so truly have, Lord. I don't know what it is about drifting. You are so good, Lord. And you are so worthy of my full allegiance. And Father, help me to be the man that hopefully others think I am, Lord. And I pray for each of us, God, that you would do a mighty work Lord, how silly it is for me to think I'm able to say something or communicate something that is going to change a life. But you can. And you have chosen to work through the weakness of people. People like me and people like my friends here. And so, Lord, I I take that to heart. And so, Holy Spirit, I just plead for your filling and your anointing. And I ask that you speak to us, Lord. And I pray that we actually hear and that we, Lord, leave with a heart for you. Because, Lord, uh, it's obvious this land needs revival. And it's obvious that each of us is a part of this land. And so have your way, Master, and speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. David. What a guy. Remember when he is first introduced to us. God works through his uh, leader, a guy named Samuel, to go and find the one that he chose to rule God's people. And so he goes to the house of Jesse. And Jesse had seven real handsome boys that were there. And Samuel looked at each of them, and and I don't know exactly how he heard from the Lord. But he spoke to the Lord, you know, is this the guy you want, Lord, to be king? And each time, as each of the seven 
were presented to Samuel. The Lord said, nah, he's not the guy. And there's that great verse in 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So there's all these guys that look the part, big, strong, handsome, articulate. But that's not who God chose. And and so finally, Samuel says, is there anybody else? We've gone through the seven. Anybody else? Yeah. I got one boy who's in the pasture. And he's taking care of the of the flocks. He says, well, bring him here. And we all know that that was God's choice. That was God's man. And it was out in the, it was out in the pasture that God spoke to David. Away from the crowds, away from the limelight, away from the fame that would come later, away from celebrity status. But as he was out in the pasture, he had the job of a shepherd and he watched the sheep and he had that harp which was actually like an ancient guitar and he would sing songs to God that were written from his heart as he spent time praying, listening to God and, and, and pouring out his heart to the Lord. And God began to build that guy and he spoke to him. And, and I want to share from uh, Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. This guy actually a shepherd, and he learned a lot. And you know, the Bible calls us his sheep. And as David learned about sheep, he learned about people. He learned about himself because God said, David, you're one of my sheep too. And I just want to read from this list, and I'm going to comment on these uh, for time's sake. But this says a lot. As Philip Keller talks about sheep, says a lot about us. Characteristics of the sheep. Number one, timid, fearful, Easily panicked. Number two, dumb, stupid, gullible. Three, very vulnerable to fear, frustration, piss, hunger. Four, easily influenced by a leader, by the shepherd. Five, stampede easily. Vulnerable to mob psychology. Number six, little or no means of self-defense can only run. Seven, easily killed by enemies. Eight, the shepherd is most effective calming influence for the sheep. Nine, jealous, competitive for dominance. Ten, constantly need fresh water, fresh pasture. Eleven, have very little discernment in choosing food or water. Twelve, best water sources early morning dew. Thirteen, perverse, stubborn, will insist on their own way, even eating poisonous plants or drinking dirty water. Fourteen, easily cast, flipped over on their back, unable to right themselves, will die of starvation if not turned over by the shepherd. Helpless. Fifteen, frequently look for easy places to rest. Sixteen, don't like to be sheared and cleaned. Seventeen, too much wool can cause sheep to be easily cast. Eighteen, creatures of habit get into ruts. Nineteen, need the most care of all livestock. Twenty, need to be on the move. Need a predetermined planned pattern of grazing. Twenty-one, totally dependent of the shepherd for every need. Twenty-two, need rod and staff. Guidance. David learned this in the pasture. He learned this being a shepherd as he looked at these sheep... And God describes Himself as the great shepherd and Jesus is the good shepherd and we're the sheep. He says, my sheep, hear my voice. 
and God worked in David and, and, and He made a, a, a man out of David that was a solid man. A man that loved Him. But David didn't stay there, guys. And so often, we as His sheep also stray. And I want to look at him because what a great example he is. And we want to spend our time, you know, here's the making of man, but what happened in the breaking of a man? And uh, so that brings us to Second Samuel chapter 11. And uh, But even before we get there, I want to look at a, another account because there's the account with Bathsheba. There's an account even before that, which I want to look at, uh, which is the account of the census that was taken where David would get a spiritual spanking as a result. Two passages there I want to look at before we get to 2 Samuel 12. The first is 2 Samuel 24. Verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David. Go go take this census. But there's a parallel verse speaking of this event that's found in 1 Chronicles 21. It gives us a different viewpoint. And it's also verse 1. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now, guys, we have two totally different viewpoints here. The Lord calls David to do a census to count the men. Satan calls a census. So, what happened? Well, as I studied this and I looked at it, if you stay there in First Chronicles 21, I think we get a real clue to what's going on in the previous chapter. And so I just want to look at that just briefly. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 20, we read down in verse 4, it says, In the course of time, war broke out with the Philistines. And then we read about these different people. Um, and it says that as a result there was battle. And verse 5 it talks about the Philistines. And it talks about this guy that was the brother of Goliath. You remember Goliath? The big boy. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? And this guy had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. And he was defeated. And in another battle, there's a guy in Goth, a huge man with six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. And it says that Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. And then verse 8 tells us, the end of First Chronicles 20, these were descendants of Rapha and Goth, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. So, here's what I think happened, guys. Here, here's what happened, I think, with the census. David became very successful. There were these battles. And David and his men were victorious. And they came home from these battles. 
And the children cheered and, and the women cried and, and people were like, Go, David! You're the man! God is with you, David! And there was victory after victory. And suddenly, I think it came to a point where David in all of his victory lost sight of where the victory came from. Suddenly, David saw himself as this great warrior. And, and I think that was Satan's work. You see, the way Satan works is he wants us to get so full of ourselves there's no room for God. I can handle it. I'm in charge. I'm able to do the job. And it's a lie. It's, it's, it's a work of the devil. Pride. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being re- rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. David began to think, man... I need to know how many men I have. I need to know how many more battles we can win. I need to know how much our territory can expand. I need to know what the level of recognition I'll receive is. <laughs> yeah, I believe it, it went to his head. And then Satan was working all that and said, Man, you need to count your men, David. You need to know a plan, David. You're the guy. You're smart. You got it together, David. And it says that the Lord was angry. I think it broke God's heart. God was broken over David pushing him aside. And so God in His kindness let David stray, I believe. I don't think that was God's heart. He didn't want David to say, I can do it without you, God. But I think that's where he was. And I think that's the sign, guys, that I need revival, that you need revival when suddenly God becomes the afterthought instead of the thought. When suddenly God becomes an option instead of life. Instead of life. And, 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 and instead of the strength that we need. And wouldn't it be great if God would just could warn us so, you know, really clearly? He lets us stray. He lets us... You know, I was thinking as I was working on this, you know, sometimes I wish God would just tell me, you know, I'm a big boy, I think I can handle it. Probably not. But I wish He'd just say, Todd, you're being an idiot. Would you just stop and look at where you're going and what you're doing? But many times He doesn't. He simply lets us continue to move away. And so David began to lose sight of God. And he began to drift. And he began to stray. And and he suddenly, I believe, stopped crying out to God for those daily assignments that he needed to know about. So, what's the lesson here? Sometimes we're most vulnerable not when we face defeat, but when there's victory and when there's success. Because suddenly we think, I can do it without God. My job's going great. My family's going great. Because I'm great. And then God gets kind of pushed aside. That was the first one. Now we go to 
Samuel, back to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to look at that very famous passage. First was pride that I believe pushed David aside. The second one is idleness. Is idleness. Um, In Spain, there is an aqueduct at a place called Segovia that was built in 109 A.D. and was used until just a few decades ago. And it would bring fresh, cool water down to the hot city. And they said, uh, the people said, you know, this is a great thing. We need to save it so it can be, you know, for future generations to see, like a museum. And so they put in modern piping and shut down the aqueduct. And then they noticed in a couple of years, the sun, as it beat on the uh, aqueduct, it began to become brittle and it began to break away and to fall apart. And suddenly something that had been used for generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years, began to fall apart in a short time because it was no longer used. So what usefulness could not do, idleness did. And this is what happened to David. As we look at the very first verse of 2 Samuel 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joel with the king's men, the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be at battle. He was supposed to be with the army. But he was in the palace. Lounging around. And and I want you to notice something that's very important. Many times we're in the wrong place because we're not in the right place. Many times we stray because we didn't follow. And that's where David was, guys. He was supposed to be at battle and none of this would have happened. This scarring, this dangerous activity that hurt not only him but the whole nation. It wouldn't have happened if he had simply been where he was supposed to be with his fighting men in battle. But instead, he said, I'm going to sit this one out. (laughs) And idleness is what destroyed him. And as he sat in the palace, he said, I'm going to go out on the roof and I'm going to look around. And He got out and he looked around and boy, did he look. There was Bathsheba, gorgeous Bathsheba bathing. And he just, you know, tongue hanging out. You know, eyes big around. I'm king. I think I'll have her come to my place. I'm not doing anything. And trouble ensued because he was in the wrong place. And it can happen to us as God's people, can it? Instead of being where God wants me to be, I'm here. And next thing I know, I'm away from God. And sin has entered my life and I'm mastered by sin instead of by the Savior and under that control. And then, and guys, that's, that's, that's where he was as he was lounging around the palace and, and, and how far it went. He became an adulterer, a murderer, a cruel chief and commander. He deprived Bathsheba of a happy marriage. Um, killed her husband. I mean, so much. So much. And, and as we see him broken, that leads us to his awakening. And I want to look at that because I think that's real crucial for us, guys, in a revival. 
And that comes in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You see, underneath all those stupid actions of David was a guy that did love the Lord. He had just lost his way. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. David would find mercy, but he needed some help because he was trying to hide his sin. We read about in Psalm 51 that he was wasting away as he, as he struggled with his sin and as God spoke to him, but he still didn't come clean. He still didn't let go of it. And, and, and so God sends his man Nathan. Look at 2 Samuel 12. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Got the picture? Treasured pet. Some of you have some of those pets that live better than you do. You know what I'm talking about. This was the love of the life at the house there. Like a little kid that was loved and cared for. Little baby. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. This precious pet that was loved, yanked away from the family and cooked as a meal for a traveler, a stranger. Notice David's response. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David was infuriated as he looked around him, as he heard this story of this man who was so calloused, who had no compassion, who cared only about himself, who didn't see this poor man and how much he loved this little pet. And Nathan simply looked at David and he said, David, you are the man. Nailed him. I don't think he had to give any other commentary or explanation or a sermon. David knew. And he was reminded God knew. And it was time. God was speaking straight to David. There was judgment that followed. But, but as I close, um, guys, I want to look at three ways David handled being nailed with the truth of his spiritual condition that is critical for us. And as we think of this area of revival, we want God to visit us with His power and His mercy and His grace. Then we need to follow the example of David here as he makes our sin clear to us. This is how we need to act. Number one, David didn't try to make excuses or blame someone or something else. We live in the age of blame. Couldn't have been me. That's not David. Notice verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And I love this about David. He didn't become defensive and he didn't try to make all these excuses. He just said, I've sinned against the Lord. He was honest 
before God. And that's where revival has to start in each of us. Be honest before God. God, this is where I am. You know already. The game stopped. Let's be honest, Lord. Just do Your work. May Your Holy Spirit have His way and just work in me, Lord, and to go through me and peruse me and help me to, to come out into the light like David said in Psalm 139 at the end of it. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That was David. I, I ran across this. I don't even know who wrote it. But it, it reminds me how God... This guy, he was comparing it to cleaning the house. Clean our hearts. Listen to this. Lord, it's the dirt and clutter in plain sight that nag at me. It's that hidden dirt, you know, behind the refrigerator, in the closets, under the bed. Dirt that no one sees or knows about but me. It's the same way with my life, God. It's those hidden sins that I can't keep up with. Those petty little grievances, the grudges, the resentments, the unspoken harsh feelings... The superior attitudes, thoughts, and feelings that no one else knows about me but you. God, help me to clean my heart as I would my home. Take away all my dust and cobwebs of pride, ill feelings, prejudice. The dirt behind my refrigerator will never hurt anyone. The dirt in my heart will. David understood this. He said, okay, God. I've sinned. Second thing he did, he humbled himself before the Lord. He fasted, he prayed, he was serious. Uh, Notice in verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. Guys, he was broken. He was crushed. He lied on the ground and and, and he he wept. And and he didn't have time to eat because he was so heartbroken. He didn't have any appetite. He said, God, I'm messed up, Lord. If not for your mercy, God, I'm, I'm done for. Verse 17 says, The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. You see, those around him, they loved David. They supported David and they said, David, you need to eat. David, you need to take care of yourself. And I think David would have said to him, You know, guys... It's not that I, I don't appreciate you, but this is between God and I. And I've got to deal with God, not you. And that's what we got to do. I know you got your junk, but my job's to deal with my junk. And that's when God begins to move and brings revival. When you and I are honest enough to say, God, deal with my junk, I'm listening. Have your way, Master. Now, that brings us to this third point, And I'm done. It says, uh, once the consequences had been paid, David got up and went to worship the Lord. Now, there was some horrific judgment that happened. And man, that'd be a whole nother sermon. I don't fully understand everything. But this child died. The child that, that came uh, from his time with Bathsheba. And it was a horrible time, guys. But, and he, he was grieving and he was broken over it all. But he came to a point where he said, it's time to move on. And, and this is from Second uh, Samuel 12, at verse 20. It says, Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went in the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house 
And at his request, they served food and ate. Now, when we sin, there's loss. It may be the loss of relationship, maybe the loss of one's health, maybe the loss of money. I mean, but there's always some kind of loss. And it hurts. It hurts to experience loss. It's painful. It's dreadfully painful. But what we can learn from David is there comes a point where even though we hurt and there's the loss, where God says it's time to get up and it's time to walk in my love and to walk in my faith and it's time to understand I have forgiven you, you need to forgive yourself. Because I tell you, I think many times we are our own worst critic. I know there's an example in my life years ago. A friend of mine I hadn't seen in a long time, and I was not very nice to this person. I was at a reunion thing. This happened ten years ago, guys. And every once in a while, I'll have a flashback. I did this the other day. I was having a conversation with myself. Todd, you are such a jerk. Why did you do that, you idiot? I mean, I was mad at myself. I was thinking, and then God reminded me, now, wait a minute. I forgave you about that. Let it go. Well, I still haven't, obviously, because I'm doing it. But that's what God says to do. And I'm saying that to you. Here, guys, at this altar, in the moment we pray and everything else, there is nothing you have done that was not paid for at Calvary. Once you're able to come clean before God and say, I have sinned, and then be totally broken about it, and honestly pray about it, and, 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 and fast and get serious about seeking God in His heart, then He says, get up and serve me, and let it go. Where he, that's, that's, that's the word. And I don't care what you've done. I'm going to close with this example. I think I'm just going to read it. I was going to try to tell it, but I shouldn't improve on the published author. Of a guy that was in one of the lowest places you could be, but experienced the forgiveness and grace of God. He still had to deal with the consequences, but he experienced new birth, and those who worked with him experienced revival. Let me read this and that's our closing. A young man cowered in the corner of a dirty, roach-infested death row cell in a South Carolina prison. His body curled in a fetal position. He seemed oblivious to the filth and stench around him. His name was Rusty, and he was sentenced to die for the murder of a Myrtle Beach woman in a crime spree that left four people dead. Police arrested 23-year-old Rusty Wilburn from Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1979 following one of the most brutal slayings in South Carolina history. Rusty was tried for murder and received the death penalty for his crime. Bob McAllister, deputy sheriff um, to South Carolina's governor, uh, chief of staff, excuse me, uh, became acquainted with Rusty on death row. Bob had become a Christian a year or so earlier and felt a strong call from God to minister to the state's inmates, especially those spending their last days on death row. Bob's first look at Rusty revealed a pitiful sight. Rusty was lying on the floor when he arrived, a pathetic picture of a man who believed he mattered to no one. The only signs of life in the cell were the roaches who scurried over everything, including Rusty. He made no effort to move or even to brush the insects away. He stared blankly at Bob as he began to talk, but did not respond. 
During visit after visit, Bob tried to reach Rusty, telling him of the love of Jesus. Even on death row, he could start a new life in Christ. He talked and prayed continuously, and finally, Rusty began to respond. Little by little, he opened up until one day he began to weep as Bob was sharing with him. On that day, Rusty, a pitiful man with murder and darkness behind him and his own death closing in ahead of him, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. When Bob returned to Rusty's cell a few days later, he found a new man. The cell was clean, and so was Rusty. He had renewed energy and a positive outlook on life. McAllister continued to visit him regularly, studying the Bible and praying with him. The two men became close friends over the next five years. In fact, McAllister said that Rusty grew into the son he never had. And as for Rusty, he began calling McAllister, Pap. Bob learned that Rusty's childhood in West Virginia had been anything but almost heaven. His family was destitute. Rusty was neglected and abused. School was an ordeal for both him and his teachers. Throughout his junior high years, he wore the same two pair of pants and two ragged shirts. Out of shame, frustration, and a lack of guidance, he quit school in the ninth grade. And that troubled him his life, whole life. His teenage years were full of turmoil as he was kicked out of his home ran away. He spent the better part of his youth living under bridges and in public restrooms. Bob taught Rusty the Bible, but Rusty was the teacher when it came to love and forgiveness. This young man who had never known real love was amazed and thrilled about the love of God. He never ceased to be surprised that other people could actually love someone like him through Jesus. Amen. Rusty's childlike enthusiasm was a breath of fresh air to Bob, who came to realize how much he had taken for granted, especially with regard to the love of his family and friends. In time, Rusty became extremely bothered by the devastating pain he had caused the family and friends of his victim. Knowing God had forgiven him, he desperately wanted the forgiveness of those he had wronged. Then, a most significant thing happened. The brother of the woman Rusty had murdered became a Christian. God had dealt with him for two years about his need to forgive his sister's killer. Finally, he wrote Rusty a letter that offered not only forgiveness, but love in Christ. Not long before his scheduled execution, this brother and his wife came to visit Rusty. Bob was present when the two men met and tearfully embraced like long-lost brothers finally reunited. Rusty's senseless crime ten years earlier had constructed an enormous enormous barrier between him and the brother. The love of Christ obliterated that barrier and enabled both men to realize that because of him, they truly were brothers reunited on that day. It was a lesson, not Rusty, but Bob would never forget Bob McAllister. Not only did Rusty teach Bob McAllister how to love and forgive, he also taught him a powerful lesson about how to die. As the appointed day approached, Rusty exhibited a calm and assurance like Bob had never seen. Only his final day, with only hours remaining before his 1 a.m. execution, Rusty asked McAllister to read to him from the Bible. After an hour or so of listening, Rusty sat up on the side of his cot and said, You know, the only thing I ever wanted was a home, Pap. Now I'm going to get one. Bob continued his reading, and after a few minutes, Rusty grew very still. Thinking he had fallen asleep, Bob placed a blanket over him and closed the Bible. As he turned to leave, he felt a strong compulsion to lean over and kiss Rusty on the forehead. 
A short time later, Rusty Wellborn was executed for murder. A woman assisting Rusty in his last moments shared this postscript to his story. As he was being prepared for his death, Rusty looked at her and said, What a shame that a man's got to wait till his last night alive to be kissed and tucked in for the first time. You know, what I'm offering you is that in a spiritual manner. Maybe you've never really been tucked in by the Master, by the love of Christ. He wants to offer His kiss of forgiveness because He loves you. He wants to make someone as ugly and disfigured by sin as you and me into a prince or a princess. He, He loves you. And He wants to move throughout this body of believers in a powerful way, guys. He wants to turn us all upside down. He wants to change us and He wants to change Bristol and and He wants to do all this stuff. Will you come? We have an altar. I'll be at the front. Guys, I know He wants to move. Just like He forgave Rusty, He wants to forgive us. Let's pray. Lord, uh, the making of a man, there was a point where David got it. He understood But there was the breaking of that man as he drifted from me, Lord. With pride and idleness, he found himself enslaved by sin. But there was the waking of the man as he came to grips with his sin, as he was broken over it, and as he came to you and decided it's time to move forward. Here we are, Lord. Somewhere in that story, is me and each one here. I pray, Father, that it would become our story, that like David, we would move on in the power of Jesus to serve you. And so, Father, I pray as we have this time we call invitation or response, that your spirit would be free to move and that we would come not just to the front of the church, but to you. So, Lord, speak. And may we obey. In your name we ask. Amen.